Okay. Here we go. July 18, 2010. Lecture discussion number seven. Lecture discussion number seven on the book of Romans. Uh, once again, uh, that is for the folks who listen by uh, internet. And I was checking on them the other day at one of the smaller sites that we have. And I'm noticing that we're averaging about 75 people per sermon now over the time. And uh, we're working to, to get that. Uh, it's just summertime. We're doing the best we can. I hope they understand. Occasionally they are whiny, but we can do our best. But anyway, it's lecture number seven for those of you listening on the book of Romans. And um, today we're going to be leaving Habakkuk behind for a while. Notice I said a while. But don't be slack and don't be neglectful with regard to Habakkuk because of his importance to the book of Romans. If you understand the principles of the book of Habakkuk, that's going to lead you to a correct interpretation of the book of Romans. And Romans is often, often just torn to pieces, and we're going to get into a little bit of that today, and misunderstood, and primarily it's because they don't understand Habakkuk and what he was trying to say. Paul could have chosen any, he could have chosen a hundred Old Testament verses, many of them as his thesis statement and accomplished the same thing. But he didn't. He was led by the Holy Spirit to his le- in his letter to the Roman Christians. He was led by God to use Habakkuk 2.4. And I've erased it, but you know what it is, right? What is Habakkuk 2.4? The just shall live by faith. That is his thesis statement. That is what he's trying to prove. And he wants to make sure the Roman church has that. The just shall live by faith. And it therefore becomes critical that we have at the least a basic understanding of the book of Habakkuk in order to ascertain why Paul chose this one verse. Actually, as, you, as I should have said more correctly, the Holy Spirit made Paul choose this one verse, Habakkuk 2.4. And it's everywhere in Paul's epistles. He keeps repeating Habakkuk 2.4. He's fighting as best he can with all he has, to make sure that all the churches that he is dealing with, that he is the apostle to, understand the just shall live by faith. Because why? Why is he doing that? He knows the consequences of people who have the wrong doctrine here. So Romans is primarily a book of doctrine for new Christians. It's a book of doctrine for people that haven't seen Paul, that haven't heard Paul, and he's pounding into them, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. you got to know it. If you don't know it, what's going to happen to you? Yeah, you're coming back in a body bag. You're going to get eaten up. So you got to understand Habakkuk. Why did he use it? What is Habakkuk doing? How is it that it builds upon the argument of salvation by grace alone through belief in the person that is Christ Jesus alone? How is it that Habakkuk 2.4 does that? And for those of you who have been diligent this summer and you've, you've attended the past few Sundays, uh, amazingly, of course, today it's raining. So you're not nearly as holy as you were last week or even yesterday. Yesterday was the last sunny, sunny, sunny day until May. You figure that out. But for those of you who have been diligent and you've come the last few Sundays, hopefully you are very much aware of Habakkuk 2.4 and that it is spoken by who? Who yells out, if you will, the just shall live by faith? Who does that in Habakkuk 2.4? 
That is God Himself. God says that, and He says it audibly and to the person, to the prophet Habakkuk. Because why? Because it's an answer. God is answering Habakkuk. Habakkuk challenges, the prophet Habakkuk challenges and complains and questions and the and the answer back from God is the just shall live by faith. See, because Habakkuk was unable to reason through something. Two things, actually. I'm just going to deal with the last one for our introduction here again today. The last one was, is why Israel, why Israel slash Judah? What do I mean by that? Why Judah? Why the southern um, uh, half of the nation of Israel? Where's the first half right now when Habakkuk is doing that? It's already in Assyrian hands. Ten tribes swept out, and they're in Kurdistan. So we only have two left. And Judah was going to be overrun. Jerusalem overrun, taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And Habakkuk was unable to figure out why. He was unable to reason through it. And he was complaining and questioning God. He was as disrespectful as you've heard me say. It was illiterate biblically. It was... It was almost, in fact, I've even made it, I said it stronger, but it was on the border of blasphemy to question God's omniscience, his goodness, his judgment. That's what Habakkuk was doing because of his inability to understand how it was that the Babylonians were going to come and slaughter the Jews. Why would God permit the pagan Babylonians to kill, slaughter the more righteous Jews? That's his second complaint. That's his second question from the prophet Habakkuk. And God answers that the just shall live by faith. That's his answer. And I challenged you over the last few weeks to figure out how it is that the just shall live by faith is the answer to why are you letting the Babylonians kill us all? And I hope that that's obvious to you now. If it's not, it was on the CD last week. And it's, of course, a couple... Okay, it's free. See Lori or Jane. So Habakkuk struggling with the wicked Babylonians because he saw them as so stupid. The prophet Habakkuk sees the Babylonians as so stupid, they're worshiping their ability to kill. They think their ability to kill is a god. And so they're worshiping it. Now they, they sacrifice to their ability to kill. They rejoice in their ability to kill. They burn incense in their ability to kill. He saw them as so stupid and so ignorant, completely clueless. Why would God let them come in and slaughter the nation of Israel, the southern half, Judah? Why would he do it? Why would he let these people, these imbeciles, They had no idea who the true God of creation was. That should have been his first understanding of the problem. Why didn't they understand who the true God of creation was? And they had no idea what would eventually befall them, uh, what would eventually be the end of evil wickedness, especially those who rejoiced in killing others. And Habakkuk would say, well, wait a minute, how can you let them slaughter us? What about the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, Genesis 12.3? Which says this, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. How come you're not protecting us, God? You're letting these idiots come through here and wipe us out. Not just dumb people, really evil, wicked, pagan dumb people. And so 
Habakkuk raises God's special covenant relationship with Israel. How could God, again, allow an evil nation, such an evil nation, run through his people, his wife? Because Israel is called the wife of Yahweh, if you will, or YHVH. More specifically, the ineffable, the unpronounceable name of God. And Israel is the wife. We, of course, the Christian church, are not the wife. Who are we? We are the bride. And knowing the difference between the bride of Christ and the wife of YHVH is essential to you to understanding the Bible. If you confuse the wife with the bride, if you have no distinction, if you don't understand those scriptures that apply to the wife, Israel, and apply to the bride, the church, then you will be in great big trouble, all through the New Testament especially. That was an aside. Habakkuk's question again. You're letting stupid people kill us. What about the covenant of Abraham? What about the curses and the blessings? What about the protection? What about the eternal throne? How can you do this? And God's answer to all of this, as you are now firmly mindful, is the just shall live by faith. That's his answer. Do you know why? That was his answer. And it changed Habakkuk, as I said last week. He goes from somebody who is complaining against God to somebody who is begging for mercy for the nation of Israel because he knows they're guilty. If you don't understand why it is, that is the answer. That is why God is doing it. The just shall live by faith. What is that, by the way? Is that a, is that a happy answer? It is a happy answer. Habakkuk begins singing songs. He saw hope in that answer. What's the first obvious hope? There's going to be justified people. So there is going to be salvation, because the question is always, why is anyone saved? Why didn't he kill every single Jew? He didn't. There would be some that would be saved. So there are just, and they're going to what? They're going to live. How are they going to live? They're going to have faith. See, that's a, that, that is a hopeful, positive response. How is it that any of the Jews would live? How is it that any of them would be justified? How is it that any of them would be, have faith? Christ, or I'm sorry, well, I'm not, actually, that's correct. Christ tells Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And that is evidence that the Jews are going to remain in existence. The covenant will stay in place, as it obviously would. God is immutable. Anyway, that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. That is the truth. And the Jews someday would have the truth. That's what he's saying to Habakkuk. Anything other than that, by the way, anything other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, is an abomination. This is the only one gospel. Galatians 1.9. This is Paul again. If anyone preaches any other gospel other than the just shall live by faith, let him be accursed. And Paul said, by the way, that that, that was taught to him by Jesus Christ face to face. Christ himself taught that to Paul. Galatians 1.12. Now, what's obvious after that? What's obvious? It's obvious that Judah was being overrun by the Babylonians. Why? 
What's that? They had no faith. Not only did they have no faith, but they did not teach, believe, practice, tell, demonstrate that the just shall live by faith. It's got to be obvious that at the time of the Babylonian invasion, Judah, Israel, was not preaching the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk knows that, especially now. They were given, essentially, this one task. They're a nation of priests. They take the truth of God. They take His person, His character, His plan of salvation to the world. That's the Gentiles. That's the pagans. And they teach them with, pay, or with joy and gladness, Deuteronomy 28:45 through 50. And if they would do that, if they would go into the nations and teach them the just shall live by faith, how much trouble would they be in right now? None. How much trouble would the Babylonians be in for trying to kill them? Lots. So clearly they are the opposite of what God intended for them to be. They are teaching something other than Habakkuk 2.4. Something other than the just shall live by faith. What's the obvious question? What are they teaching? It's getting them killed by Babylonians, whatever it is. Now, what's the application? Getting killed? Pagans running through your house? Get wiped out? What are you teaching? You run around teaching the just shall live by faith? You got some other perverted, polluted doctrine. Who says I don't do applicational sermons? The Jews refused. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't teach it. They didn't teach it. They don't talk about it. What are they doing? They did the absolute, almost complete. If I had to put it on a scale... If I had salvation by grace here, okay, if I have Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4, if I had that right there, that's where it is on the scale, and as far away as I could get from that, I would have the Jews, that's where they would be. Not only are they not teaching it, they're not teaching any part of it. I run into churches all the time, pastors all the time, that'll tell me, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but law is a part of it. There's a small little part of law in there, and if you don't keep the rules that we set forward as a church, which is first and foremost, tithing to the pastors, you know, I get that all the time. You have certain things you must do. Whatever it is, they'll tell you what it is that you must do in order to be saved and stay saved. They have law and grace. No, it is law or grace. And the Jews created a system of works-based salvation that was at the far extreme. They were not just not teaching it, they were doing worse. They taught the absolute opposite of the just shall live by faith. It is a total, complete failure. How could this be? How do you get to a place where you read this Bible and you come up with a salvation by some other way other than the just shall live by faith? How would you do it? Why would you do it? What's your motive for doing it? Hmm? You can yell it out. His control and His power and its authority. Because if you've got to be saved in my system, the Steve system of salvation, first rule, like Steve. 
Second rule, if you don't like Steve, pretend to like Steve. As you know, I used to tell my basketball players, I don't care if you like me. I care that you pretend to like me. Those who pretend the best get the most playing time. It really was a very simple system, and I had many of them that were brilliant pretenders. And I still like that. didn't offend me. <clears throat> Some of them play softball for me today, and they're still skilled pretenders. It's really a sad thing, my softball now. It really is. It's hard on me. Bill and I drive to work on Wednesdays together, and he comes to an occasional game so that he can mock me the next day. And uh, he says, how does it feel to, and, uh, eh, to, to be horrible at this now? <laughs> it's pretty hard to get mad at Bill. Bill, you may not know, was a great athlete. Maybe, maybe one of the best ever up here. Certainly in the top five. Hardly anyone knows it. You should see pictures of him in his 50s. It's scary how powerful a man he was. How quick he was. What he could do. Every sport. He was, uh, when I was teaching school, he had retired. But everybody still talked about the great Bill Fast. I can say things because he's not here. But he was amazing. And, and, and he knows, <laughs> this is another funny story, I'm going to get off track now. One of the things my dad said to me before he died is, you're a pretty good softball player. Pretty good, I've seen you. You were good, especially when you were in your early 20s. You were fast, you had power, you were really good, great arm. You were as good as there was up here, Steve. He'd tell me, you weren't as good as me. <laughs> and Bill is the same way. I'm not as good as Bill. He was that good. But he knows what it's like to not be able to do it. And he was trying to, trying to laugh and have sympathy for me at the same time. One of the things he told me on Wednesday is, pretty soon you won't care about it. I said, really? When does that happen? He said, when you have no memory left. You won't remember that you're terrible. That's part of the way it is now. I forget really fast how terrible I am, and I think the next game, it's going to all come back. No, it's not. It doesn't. Okay, where was I? Israel has total failure. Total, complete failure. And so now cursing. And why? Why did they have this? What makes them do it besides the power and the system? As I said, Steve's system. The first thing in Steve's system would be that you have to submit to me. Why do men want power over others? Why do they crave it? Why do they want control? We all have worked for, been around, especially in churches, the control freaks. Right? They want authority over you. They want to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and... and it's amazing. They're everywhere. Why do they want to do that? Does that work on you, by the way? We've weeded out most of them. We're not controllable here. They try. They've tried. They've almost succeeded. And we eventually buried them in the crawl space. That's a joke for those of you on the Internet. But they, they're groups of people and churches that really do. They, they want to come into a church, especially a small one like us, and they want to. You're really excited because you see all these new people. Wow, and here comes the tithe check. And wow, that's really good. And then pretty soon here comes the demand for control. You have to be really careful. 
They do not have. If I said to them, the just shall live by faith, they would say, no, it's not true. The just shall live by faith and a system of works. So that's Israel. However, they were to the far left. They were a total, complete, absolute failure. And so now the cursings would come. Blessings would come, but cursings would come if you failed to be obedient. And the curses would come. God would then take Israel, who would not teach the truth, would not teach what He told them to teach, would not be the example He told them to be, and He would then send them into the entire world. He would disperse them. He's done it a couple of times. Babylonian captivity and then the great dispersion after the Romans tore their temple to pieces. He sent them all through the world and made them a sign and a wonder. What that really means is He made them almost a hideous example where people would go, whoa, God did that to them. He made them a sign. And He did it. He cursed them. Why did He curse them? This is important to know. If God curses you, why? Why does He do it? He says he's going to... Let's take Adam. Why did he curse the ground? What's he say? I'm going to curse the ground. Why? For your sake. For your sake. Curse is for thy sake. For our sake. And that's what he's doing to them. That's pretty much where we left off. Israel attempted to substitute Ishmael for Isaac. Does that make sense to you? Ishmael, uh, son of the flesh, Genesis 17, 18. Abraham, here's the great Abraham, right? The father Abraham. He's the Abrahamic covenant, the seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed. Uh, Abraham says, don't take Isaac, take Ishmael. Genesis 17, 18. Take the son of my flesh, not the son of promise. As Abraham did that. That's what Israel is doing. They want their flesh to bring salvation. They don't want the son of promise. Who's the son of promise? What are they ultimately saying? If you say, if you're rejecting grace, who's grace? Christ is grace. You're saying, I want another system other than Christ. I want to add something to Christ. I want law and Christ. Is that what you're saying? Big trouble. You're rejecting the Son of Promise for the Son of your own flesh. That typology is there in Genesis 17, 18. Works of man instead of the gift of God. Cain's bloodless offering. And this fascinates me, by the way. I don't know what to say. I'm going to make people mad all over, all over China and Russia now. Since that's who listens the most to me. They outnumber us significantly. Many theologians will tell you it had nothing to do with the content of the offerings that Cain and Abel brought. They will tell you it had everything to do with the content of their character. It is the number one position. I have a whole Old Testament from every single page is about what? Blood. Except in the one spot where it's Cain and Abel. That makes no sense at all. Can't be, cannot be defended logically. It clearly is. Cain brought a bloodless offering. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. The bloodless offering is rejected. The sacrifice that is a picture of Christ's blood is accepted. And now, why do I bring up Cain and Abel? One brought the just shall live by grace, if you will. 
The just shall live by the blood of Christ. The other one brought the works of his own hands, right? Israel hates the Gentiles. They hate this doctrine. Israel loves their works-based system. That's an abject failure and leads to condemnation, but they love it. Now, compare that to Cain, who is a type of Israel. He's a wanderer. He's homeless. He has marked, he's marked by God and protected by God, and everyone's seeking to kill him. And there he is. There's Israel, right? He's hated and he's jealous of Abel's accepted blood offering, which is a symbol of Christ. And that is the defining issue here, blood versus works. Anyway, that leads us to where we are today. Okay, so now we're all caught up. We can start the sermon. We're at Romans 2, 11 through 29. And this is very, very, very tough sledding. If you don't have a Bible, go. Do we? Have, where are they piled up somewhere? You need one. Go get one. Force yourself. Yeah, there they are on that table there. Force yourself to read this. This is going to... I cannot avoid the drool fest that's surely coming here. I can't do it. it. It's not the text. The text is incredible. It's me. It's my problem. I can't bring it alive. I don't know why. I've tried. I'm going to try again. But I know what's going to happen. Romans 2, 11 through 29 might be the foremost reason that we eat the buffet after the sermon. Because if you had anything in your stomach right now, you're going to go face first on the table. Big, loud thud. I have never successfully got any group through this awake. And you're very quickly going to see the problem. And here we go. Chronister's cure for insomnia. Ready, get set, pass out, because here it comes. Romans 2.11. Try to just hang in there. This is very, very important. This is an extremely misunderstood portion of Romans, gotten wrong all the time, and actually brought up by the ones who have a law plus grace system to try to prove to you that their system is correct, and they use Romans 2 primarily. So here we go. 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. What's that mean? God's fair. What's that mean? That's how we start this. God has no partiality. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the works of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What did you notice there? A lot of law going on, right? A lot of law. Got to define law. Let's keep going. Indeed, you are called a Jew. 
and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Ye who pre- you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make the, your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, what are we dealing with so far? Lots of law. Anybody, how are we doing? Anybody have any idea what that's about? Ready to turn in your essay on Romans 2, 11 through 17, 24? It gets worse. Here we go. Romans 2, 25. For, here's my favorite. This is probably my favorite of all time. I love to do this on Christmas. For circumcision, not circumcision, but I like to talk about it. What? First off the bat, how many have been here before and heard me lecture on circumcision? Four or five of you. What is circumcision a symbol for? Whenever you see circumcision, you should always mentally, very quickly, replace it with something. What should you replace it with? Christ crucified. That's correct. Good for you. It becomes Christ crucified. For circumcision is indeed, or you could read it, for Christ's crucifixion. Or Christ crucified. You can substitute it and, and be right 99% of the time. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are breaker of the law, your circumcision has become come uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even... With your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Okay. First section is about the law. The second section is about circumcision. And there we go. So now we're going to put stuff on the board for you and see if we can get you through it. And again, you're going to run into people who think that you don't know what this means and they're going to use it against you. So we will try to get you through it. Right off the bat, we could try to establish definitions because right off the bat, we have two things going on. We have without law... And, not, and we have in the law, some of your Bibles might say under the law, either one, fine. And then we have the law, and we have a law in there. So there's where we've got to start. We've got to have definitions for all of that. But first, what do we do? What's the context again? What's the context? Think back to when we started, when you were awake. What's the context? God is impartial. That's the context. So 
So this is how we go. God is impartial, for there is no partiality with God. And ultimately, what's the major context of the entire book of Romans? The just shall live by faith. So there's your two contexts, if you will. The righteousness of God is revealed, and the just shall live by faith. And Paul is going about proving these things. He's proving that God is impartial and the just shall live by faith. And he begins by once again dividing mankind into two groups. I have those that are without law and I have those who are under the law. So tell me right off the bat, who is without law in the context of the just shall live by faith and God is impartial? Who is he talking to? And by the way, you go back to Habakkuk, because it's the same thing there. Habakkuk is talking about two groups of people. Who's he talking about? Paul is talking about two groups of people. Who's he talking about? Without law and in the law. Who's the without law group? Gentiles. The pagans, if you will. Right? The Babylonians, if you will. The Greeks. Who's in the law? The Jews. There's his two groups. And God is not partial. Those without law and those in the law. And I'm going to forego the tedious point-by-point research and logic and reason that will lead you to this correct interpretation. Notice how I just did that to you. Okay? That's kind of a joke, but not really. I can do it. If you would like me to, we'll go all around the Bible and I'll prove to you that this is the Gentiles who are without law and these are the Jews who are under the law or in the law. And that would just about finish you off if I did it for those who remain awake and it would be permanently comatose in here. It would just be horrible. And I don't want to do that because I know how important this is. I have about half of you just about catatonic. Let me just get to this definition again. The contrast is between those. See, what we're going to do now is we're going to define the law. I can go do it this way. I can tell you it's the Torah, or I can tell you it's the 613. What's that mean? The Torah is the law. Notice that it is not plural. There aren't laws in the Old Testament. There's one law. There's 613 pieces of one law, if you will, but there's only one law. So I have those who were given the Torah. That's what this means. In the law, they were given the special revelation. They were given the special understanding. And then I have those who were not. So those without the special revelation, those without the special knowledge, those are the Gentiles, those who were given it by God, those who were the Jews. Now, what's in the law? The special understanding. There's knowledge, there's wisdom, there's prophecy, there's symbols, there's typologies. All of that was given to the Jews, and that is why they are called in the law. None of that was given to the Gentiles. That's why they're called without the law. That's what this is talking about. Some will tell you this is, this is unsaved and saved. No. In the context of the Jew-Gentile, which is the context of the first two or three chapters of Romans and of Habakkuk, it clearly is Jew-Gentile, not saved, unsaved. Okay, so if you got that, we're doing good. 
Without the law means outside of special revelation. In the law, under the law, means access to the Torah. Those taught by God through his feasts, his priesthood, his sacrificial system, his prophets, as opposed to those who were outside of his teaching system, outside of his special revelatory guide, if you will. Now, what is the Torah about? Ultimately, what, let me be more accurate, of whom does the feast days, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot, if you will, weeks, trumpet atonement, tabernacles. Okay? Who does that teach of? Who is that? That's Christ, every single one of them. How about the sacrificial system? Christ. How about the priesthood? Christ. How about the ordinances? Christ. The wedding ordinance? Christ. How about the symbols? The ark? The temple? The tabernacle or tent of Moses? Christ. It's all about... How about the typology? Whom does all of this... They were given who? What? The law means if they're in the law, access to the Torah, under the law, they were given special revelation about whom? Jesus Christ. They weren't. Is that fair? What's the answer? Yes. Do you know why it's fair? Yeah, the Jews were supposed to teach the Gentiles. How are they doing in that job? Not so good. Okay, put yourself in the picture now. Do you have special revelation? What's your job? If nothing else, teach your kids. Jesus Christ. The law is about Christ. His person, His redemptive work. Okay? Let me look around. So far, so good. Really, it's hard to say. Now, let's add some more stuff on the list. It's just... It's terrible. Sinned without the law. Who sinned without the special revelation? The Gentiles did, right? Does that make sense? Who said, who, and they also perish without the law. Is that fair? And I'll put special revelation, if you will, if that helps you. Oops. Who sinned without the law? The Gentiles did. And now they perish without the law. Is it fair? They never got the instructions and they're going to perish. Is that fair? What's the answer? Yes. So what's the real question? Why is it fair? Then I have, I have, that's the Gentiles, right? You got that? Does that make sense to you? Now I have who? Who's coming next? The Jews are going to come next. And they sinned even though they had the law, sinned in the law. And what happened to them? They were judged by the law. I'll put it this way. They perished. Okay? And then he says this wonderful thing. Let me read this. Let me get to you. For as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. You see that? They will perish without the law, sin without the law, and perish without the law. There it is. 
Many have, as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Sinned in the law, and they will perish in the law. This is the Gentiles sin without the law, and they perish. Here's the Jews. They've got the law. They sin, and they also perish. What's the difference? What did, you, what did Paul just prove to you? God is not partial. You can have all the special revelation in the world. If you're still sinning, what's God's definition of sinning here? Rejection, yes, very good. Who said rejection? You get an A. You have the special revelation, and if you reject, you're going to what? Perish. You can be out there going crazy like the Babylonians, or if we will, pick the group du jour in this country. You're going to perish. Both groups sin, both groups perish. The Gentiles sinned and perished without special revelation. The Jews sinned and perished, though they had special revelation. God is impartial. Just because you sit in a church, in a synagogue, or you're at a seminary, you're exposed to the truth, you're born into Jewish or Christian parents, you participate in all the catechism, ceremonies, traditions, nonetheless, you will not live by that. How will you live? How is it that, what's the opposite of perish? Live. How is it that you will live? You live by what? Faith. You have to have faith to live. The law isn't going to help you live. You have to understand what the law is teaching you and have faith. See, the just shall live by faith. Same for those outside of the special revelation. They have as all have. See, he says this. Let me read it to you so you get it. Okay? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, they don't have the law, but they still do things in the law. How's that? What makes them do it? Nature makes them do it. Where'd they get the nature? Who, who gave them the nature to do it? These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. In other words, they don't have the law, but somehow they know what the law is, and they have, therefore, the law in themselves. They didn't get the special revelation, but they have an innate Understanding, a given understanding, a instinctive, a buried into their core understanding of God. Where did it come from? Came from Him. Did He leave anybody out? No. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Which means, of course, He's omnipotent. You cannot be omniscient. You cannot be omnipresent unless you are omnipotent. They, those three are a triangle, a triune. Oh, how shocking that is, huh? Here's what he says about the Gentiles who do not have the law, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. That's Jesus Christ judging the secrets of men on the throne. Okay, up here it says, not the hearers of the law are justified or saved in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. Okay, so there's the key question. The Gentiles have an innate, a warning, they have a warning system. They sin, they perish. They will be justified. They will live by faith. The Jews have the law. They will live by faith. 
Now it says the doers live, not the hearers. This is where you will hear all the time they will say, see, you've got to do the law. If you don't do the law, you're going, to, you're going to perish. It's the doers. It says it right there. Right there it says. Doers of the law will be justified. See, so you've got to do the law. You've got to do Protestant law. That'll be 20 bucks. I've got a big purple chair to pay for. I've got a pink wig, whatever i got. Drives me nuts watching that. How does this work? Send money. Send all the money. Do the law. Right there. Romans. Who are the doers of the law? What does it mean to do the law? Why do the doers do the law? That's the key question. That's the key question to all of it. Answer that one correctly and all the rest of them fall into place. You won't send money. You won't buy a purple chair. You won't have a pink wig. Eyelashes out to there. Every now and then one of Anna's eyelashes fall on the ground and we kill it because we think it's a spider. Imagine that later. I'd think it was a tarantula. That thing every... Because you know, you see, the just shall live eternally because of faith, because of belief in Jesus Christ. That's the context. You know that. You know God does not give grace. He does not give eternal life. He does not justify those who perform good works. You know that. But instead, to those who believe, who trust in Him. You know that. And those who believe are revealed by something. What are they revealed by? They do something. What do they do? What do they do primarily and foremost? They're the doers. They don't just hear it. They go out and do it. What do they go out and do? They don't just listen. They go out and do it. Why do they do it? Because they want to glorify God with it and they want to be thankful for something. What do they want to be thankful for? They want to be thankful for being saved. And so they go out in joy and gladness and obedience, glorifying God and with thankfulness for the eternal life that's given to those (coughs) who believe on the name of Christ Jesus. And they teach the just shall live by faith. That's what he's talking about there. Does that make sense to you? Those are the doers. The doers are going out and teaching the ones who don't know the just shall live by faith. Now, Jesus Christ is going to judge the secrets of men, reveal the hearts of men in that day, and all the motives are known, and those who want purple chairs are going to get crushed. Sorry, not really, fake sorry. So now you got through the first part. What comes next? Circumcision. That'll be great. Invite all your friends next week for circumcision. Say, hey, come to Cliffside in the middle of the summer, put up with the sermon, get the buffet, and the topic's going to be circumcision. It's a big crowd pleaser. Where do you go to learn about circumcision? I already told you already, it's a symbol for Christ crucified. How do I know that? Where you go, you go to Moses, you go to Moses and Zipporah. 
So let's read that because I got four minutes and 48 seconds. So here you go, just in case you think I don't care about your current state of sleepiness. Here we go. Exodus 4:21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh. Here he is again. Pharaoh is coming back, isn't he? Which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Why does he harden Pharaoh's heart? You got to know that because it's going to teach you about what? Circumcision. If you understand why the Pharaoh's heart is hardened, what it means to harden a heart, what's it mean? I'll help you out again. God is going to harden everyone in this church's heart. How's he going to do it? This is how he's going to do it. He's going to withdraw himself. It's what he does in the tribulation. It's what he does. That's what he means. How is that harden your heart? Him taking a step back. And that's a, a, a kind of a analogy that has some flaws in it, but I think you'll get the point. Here we go. Then you shall say to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I hope you see the typology of Christ there. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's the Passover. Is that fair? Is that good? Yes, he killed all those firstborn sons. What happened to them all? Under the age of accountability, what happened to them all? That was a wonderful thing for them, wasn't it? Especially you're Egyptian. Ain't good being Egyptian. Everybody takes a bath, right? And it, that's, never mind. And it came to pass on a way at the encampment that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. So after he told him about the Pharaoh, he's now going to kill Moses. Then Zipporah sought, or then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. How did she know? How did she know that after we talk about the Pharaoh and killing the firstborn, that we're going to be meeting halfway and Christ is going to come, confront Moses and seek to kill him? And the only way to stop Christ from killing Moses is to do what? Get a sharp rock and circumcise my son. How old is he? And a baby. Try this at home. How is it that Zipporah knew what to do? That's a key question here. Surely you are a husband of blood to me. That is the key to understanding circumcision is Zipporah screaming at Moses after she cuts off the foreskin of her two sons. She says, surely you are a husband of blood to me. Who is a husband of blood? Jesus Christ is a husband of blood. So you have a doctrinal statement here. Who is who does not like their husband of blood? I have taken it off the board, but that would be the wife of YHVH. So now you begin to understand what's going. So he let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. 
And there's your answer. Substitute Christ crucified, husband of blood for circumcision. Next week, we will learn what all of that means. Let's have musicalities. And let's rise and be dismissed and go to the buffet. Last one awake gets fewer meatballs. How it works. Oh, pizza. Let's all sing.